At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 583rd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who embraces seed diversity and experimenting with new vegetable varieties. We're talking with Greg Mueller about breeding your own vegetable seeds at home. Greg holds a Bachelor's of Arts in Pure Mathematics and Philosophy, Diploma of Teaching, a Graduate Diploma of Outdoor Education, a Master's Degree in Environmental Science, and is currently enrolled in a PhD program examining ecology of root parasitic trees. He has worked as a park ranger, secondary school maths and science teacher, environmental planner, outdoor instructor, and spent the last 19 years as a natural history lecturer at university. But his passion, as you will soon learn, is growing vegetables. He has grown vegetables for over 50 years, but now concentrates on breeding locally adapted vegetables, providing seeds for his local community and interested vegetable growers and breeders with climates similar to the dry Mediterranean conditions of Central Victoria, Australia. Welcome to the show today, Greg. Are you ready to rock seeds? I sure am, Greg. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Well, yeah, I've been growing veggies since I was probably a teenager In grew up in Melbourne, Victoria, and moved to Bendigo about 20 years ago for a job and just put a veggie garden in the backyard. It was pretty dry, rocky slope. Bendigo's considerably drier than, than Melbourne is. I think our climate is pretty similar to central California. Mm. And yeah, I had pretty thin soils. I started gardening there at the start of our millennium drought. So that was like 10 years or 12 years of really, really, the, well, the worst drought on record for this part of Australia. Uh-huh. And yeah, I put in tanks and started growing veggies and started thinking about what are we going to do in you know a drying climate. So moved on from there, I suppose. How much rain do you get there? Look, I'm not sure. I think it's about, on average, it's 550 millimetres. Mm-hmm. What does that convert to? About 55 centimetres, two and a half. That's 20 inches a year. That's pretty... Yeah, but we haven't had that for quite some time, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get the occasional year where we where we meet that long-term average, but the climate's drying. Oh, no, that is wrong. Um, <laughs> I just pulled up the uh, millimetres to inches and yeah. 55 millimetres. Oh, you said 550 millimetres. Yeah, about 500, 550, something like that. Oh, uh, okay, good. Yeah, so that's 22 inches 
of rain a year. That, that's three times what we get here in the local desert of Phoenix. <laughs> yeah. And I know you've not been getting as much, so. Yeah. Well, yeah, it sort of got me thinking about if it's going to get hotter and drier, how do I keep growing the stuff I like to eat? And we also have pretty hot, dry autumns until the autumn break arrives. And that's been pretty variable. And I started thinking about growing in those in-between seasons. Because the summers were getting pretty intense, I started thinking, perhaps I should be growing in the spring and autumn and not trying to grow so much stuff right in the depths of summer. It's just you know a little bit too harsh and I didn't have enough water to keep things going really during those really, really hot parts of the summer. So you're really in a desert area then? Well, it's not so much desert. Yeah, it's a bit marginal. It's, it's good cropping land around here, but you wouldn't be growing a whole lot of vegetables here as a farmer. They used to. Bendigo was a big tomato growing area in the past, uh-huh. but now it's sort of wine and grain and wool, I suppose, mostly. Two very, wine and grain, two very important uh, things for our pasta. Yeah, they sure are. (laughs) Right? So you've jumped in and you're playing with seed varieties. And before we got on, you actually showed me some pictures of your some carrots and peas. How long have you been playing with seed varieties? Well, I was just looking back through my growing diaries. It was in 2010. I'd been growing quite a few heritage tomato varieties. And I heard about the cross-hemisphere dwarf tomato project. Interesting. Um, which, a, a fantastic project started up Petrini Nuski Small, and who was living in Adelaide, and Craig Luhulia from the States. And they'd got together, and Petrina wanted to try tomato breeding and didn't know where to start. And Craig suggested, why don't you try and breed some nice-tasting dwarf tomatoes? There aren't any. Uh-huh. Well, she did a couple of crosses and sent the seed, because it was still legal then, to send seed back and forth between Australia and America. And this big community cooperative breeding project began with people growing in Australia, selecting what was looking like what they wanted to aim for here. Uh-huh. That would then get posted to the States in March. That would be grown out in your summer oh. and then posted and then posted back to Australia and grown out in our summer. So they were getting two generations a year. Wow. Um, and that really accelerated the selection process. Oh, I'll bet. It's a fantastic, it's absolutely fantastic international community vegetable breeding project. And I thought, well, I've got to be in this. So <laughs> right? I, started, I started growing some out. And I think that was when I came across Carol Deppie's Breed Your Own Vegetable yeah. Varieties. Mm-hmm. And... I probably read it in about three or four nights, the whole book. Oh, wow. And, and I was just hooked. And she was talking about breeding colored snow peas. And I also got onto Rebsy Fairholm's blog from the UK. And Rebsy was into breeding colored snow peas as well. It seems like Rebsy and Carol both stopped those projects. I don't know what for. I thought, hey, look. I can give that a go. I've got hold of purple potted peas here and I've got some good snow peas. And so one spring I just went out with some tweezers and did a couple of crosses on some peas. And yeah, away it went. So so hold on here. You got to give us more data on that. You went out with some scissors and did a couple of crosses. What did that uh, look like? Tell me more. Actually, it was, I think I went out with tweezers or a scalpel or something because that's what Carol used. I now use some um, little forceps. But you'd go out early one morning and open up a pea flower because peas generally self-pollinate themselves. Right. So you open up the flower before the pollen has matured 
and you pull off all the little pollen bits on the flower. You close the flower up and then you go out the next day and you get the pea you want to be the father and you open up a slightly older flower where the pollen has matured but not gone off and you just take a little bit of pollen on the end of your tweezers or your forceps or your scalpel and just walk over to the other flower, gently open it up and rub a little bit of the pollen on the inside of that female flower. And so you've got a cross between the two. And Put a little tag on it and wait for it to set seed. Wow. And they call these F1, right? Yeah, yeah. So that produces F1 seed. And you then need to grow that out. But you don't get a whole lot of expression coming out in those children. But the year after, the grandchildren, just all of this diversity just emerges out of those that, that one cross of, of plants. So... I was getting purples and half purples and snow peas and woody peas and every sort of combination in between. Uh You then need to grow those out, progressively searching for the thing that you want. And after about six generations, perhaps, you've got a purple snow pea. Wow. So one of the things you said was you grow them out looking for those things that you want. What might that be? Well, it was interesting. I really know what I was doing. I just thought, hey, this will be fun. Let's see what happens. So I just did a few crosses and probably too many because once you start getting the children and then the grandchildren and then the great-grandchildren of that original cross, Uh you're getting hundreds of different varieties with all this huge mix of traits in them. And it's really difficult to find your way through all of those. Well, it's not that difficult. I mean, it's fun. You just run out of space, really. <laughs> right. Well, um, it's, at some point, though, you should be able to get something that's stable enough that would be new, like a pump zini or something like that, that you could sure. name, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a couple of different approaches depending on, you know, the particular pollination technique of that of that variety. So I don't know if you've ever let carrots go to but the the flowers are tiny yeah so you know you need a microscope to be able to go out there and pull apart that big complex flower head and take the pollen off some tiny speck of a flower like it's just not practical so I, i did start getting into i thought to myself i got into carrots i thought I can't grow big, long carrots in my shallow, rocky soil. Mm -hmm. So why don't I grow little, short, round, Paris market-style carrots? They're just like little round golf balls. And I thought to myself, why do they only come in orange? There's white carrots and yellow carrots and purple carrots. So wouldn't it be fun to see if you could grow a round, purple carrot? So I just planted every colored carrot and every variety of carrot I could find and just let them all cross up and then got the seed off it and grew it out. And I'm still searching for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so interestingly enough, though, with carrots, you got to harvest the carrot before it goes to seed to figure out if it's the seed you want to save, if and you're yeah yeah. So oh yeah. my gosh, how do you do that? Well, the root crops are, are pretty interesting. As I said before, here I tend to focus on the spring and the autumn. So I would be sowing the carrots early in spring here, growing them out, and around about midsummer I'll pull them up, have a look at what the roots look like, mm-hmm. and even though they have growing to full size, you can pretty easily pick the ones that are going to be the ones you want. So roundish and purplish eat the other ones right. and take the ones that you like can chop the tops off and put them in the fridge so that they think it's been winter and then replant them i would grow i would sow in the end of our summer 
right. and then pull up in late autumn, have a look at those plants, sort out the ones that I want to turn into seed or want to breed from, right. replant those and let them grow out over the following winter. And then in spring, they think, hey, hey, it's time for us to have babies. And so they go to seed and flower and just let the insects do their thing, collect the seed in midsummer. And the next autumn, sow it again and pull them up in winter, mm -hmm. have a look again, sort them again, replant the ones you want, get the next the seed in the next spring and so on. And it's a process, especially with carrots, because carrots actually go to seed in their second season, right? Yeah. So I'm fooling the carrots a little bit. Usually, you know, if you're growing a commercial crop of carrots, you're planting in spring, growing it all the way through summer all through autumn and then pulling them up and eating them. Right. And then they would be going to going to seed the next spring. What I'm doing is just planting in autumn so that they grow small roots, but enough so that I can select them for shape and color. And then they think they've had a whole season, but they've only had like three months over autumn to grow. Right. And then I plant them in winter and then they think, oh, we've had a winter. We're old enough now. Let's flower and make seeds. Nice. Yeah, I actually, I'm sitting in my office and there's a French door going out to my patio and I'm sitting here looking at a five-gallon pail of yeah. carrot seeds that I harvested last, this this past season. That's how many carrot seeds, carrots are amazingly productive. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got I've got enough carrot seed for the whole of southern Australia sitting in my <laughs> fridge, I think. Right. I grew that in maybe three square meters of, yeah. of garden bed. Yeah. They're really, really productive. Big time. Yeah, if, if anybody in the world wants parsnip seed, I've got half a fridge full of that too. <laughs> yeah, I was in Croatia 2014 and I got a huge bag of parsnip seed and, you know, it's that's a lifetime supply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting though too. You know, parsnip seed is said to uh, have a really short shelf life. Uh -huh. This season I planted parsnip seed from 2011. So that was like nine years old. Did they grow? And yeah, yeah, yeah. I got good germination. So seed you grow yourself that is fresh and robust and stored properly. And you just get, you know, I mean, I, I, you wouldn't be trying to sell seed that old, but I was just really impressed that any came up at all. Right. So you have been working with the Open Source Seed Initiative and you've pledged two varieties of your snow peas. Tell us about that. Yeah, OSSI or the Open Source Seed Initiative is an organization that has um, international members now but started in North America and it's trying to protect the openness of the genetic resources of our vegetables. So as a breeder, I've pledged my varieties and the pledge says it's it's a bit similar to open source software mm -hmm. um, rather than proprietary software for computers. So it says if you can use this seed for whatever you like, you can breed from it or sell it or grow it out and use the genetic resources of this seed, but anything you produce from it also has to be open source. So the pledge goes along with the seed and the genetic resources in that seed are then open to anybody else to use, which is awesome. quite different to, to the protected genetics of um, plant variety, PVRs, plant variety rights. And what's the other one? The utility patents that I yep. think you have in the US, but right. I don't think we have those here now yet. So un under that sort of system, breeding company can protect their, their genetic 
resources and the, the effort they've put in by saying, hang on, you can't breed from this because we've registered it and you can't use this genetic resource to breed new varieties from. That's a good thing. I was just thinking, I haven't had them on my podcast yet. We need to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You really should. Given the concentration of our seed resources into really big multinational companies who protecting, putting patents effectively on the seeds that we all grow or the genetic resources that we all grow from and then saying you're not allowed to breed from these is wrong. It just, just doesn't, sit, doesn't sit right with me. I can understand right. why, why they want to do it, but it doesn't sit right with me given that those genetic resources belong to all of us. There's, yeah. you know, some, somebody goes out and, and supposedly discovers it. They're not really creating anything. They're just taking stuff from the genetic resources that at the moment we all, we yeah. all own. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Bill and I have talked a lot, Bill McDormand and I have on our seed chat have talked a lot about that over the years. And so if you want more I, information on that, Look up, we have a couple of talks with Bill on our podcast on seed patenting. Yep, I've been following those assiduously, Greg. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And you're working on melons. And Janice left me a note here, maybe even something a little bit epic. The melons are, um, 10 years ago, it was still possible to bring seeds in from the United States into Australia. We have really strict quarantine laws and for, for good reason, but it was a little bit more flexible then, and I got hold of some seeds from a Tim Peters breed of a melon, not so much a variety, it was a, mel a melon variety called Farthest North, which was a big genetic mix of quick developing, small mm. melons with a whole lot of diversity in them. Yeah, that makes um, sense. And I've, yeah, I've been selecting out of that myself over the last 10 years, looking for a little lunchbox melon. So a cantaloupe-style melon with great flavor and beautiful aroma and really sweet that is the size of an apple. So it's a single-serve melon, and I'm getting really close. They're just spectacularly good. Um, nice. You walk out the back door, and if they're ripe, from like 20 yards away, you can smell that there's a ripe melon out there in the patch. Oh, and nice. they're just beautiful. There's a few other sort of growing characteristics that I'm trying to incorporate as well. So melons that slip when they're ripe, so you know when they're ripe, they fall off in your hand. Oh, yes. Um, ones that don't split if you get a bit of extra rain. And I'm also thinking of trying to cross it to a dwarf form of plant. So there are some melons that are big, long and scrambling. Yep. But there's a couple of varieties that are actually quite small and compact vines. And... If I can put, if I, well, I've done the cross and now I need to grow it out and stabilize it. Put a little melon onto a little plant. You could grow this on your balcony. You could grow it in a, yeah, five-gallon pot. So that would then allow people in like small flats and apartments and stuff like that to grow their own melons. Wow. Nice. And you sure do have a passion for this. <laughs> It gets pretty addictive, Greg. Yeah. Um, well, there's, there's a few other things I'm working on as well. I'm working on a short, fat parsnip. I just thought to myself, I've got really shallow soils. Right. Uh, I, I can't grow big, long parsnips. Why do parsnips have to be big and long? Like, just because? And I managed to get hold of a European variety, which was short and fat, and I thought I should put a bit of genetic diversity back into that. So I crossed it with some Australian parsnips. Or I, I let the, the insects do the crossing. And um, <laughs> right. yeah, I've, I've been selecting.
neglecting that out, I suppose, for the last yeah, eight or 10 years. I had a few years off when I didn't put it in, but back working on that one now. Awesome. Wow, you just have a lot of fun with this and did take note that you said, I looked in my garden journal. That's a really important piece of this, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I keep a big A4 letter, I suppose, American letter size hardcover pad with a grid, it grids on both pages so mm-hmm. I can actually get a map out my veggie gardens and note down where I'm, it's a, not a perfect map, it's just a notional map. And then mark down where and what I've planted into the garden. So, And then on the facing page, I write the dates and, yeah, what I planted and where I planted it. Because no matter how many tags you put in your garden, they, uh, will, always, they will always disappear. Yep. So having multiple records because, yeah, when you make a mistake, it could be really annoying. Yep. I pricked out a huge flat of eggplant seedlings a couple of weeks ago and I went back out to the garden to have a look at what they were. I'm growing like seven or eight varieties of eggplants. Forgot to put the label in. Oh, (laughs) well, now you just get to grow them out and see what you get. And what about the onions and leeks, man? Another, I suppose, passion of mine is the perennial vegetables. So stuff that you don't have to worry about tiny little seedlings of. Mm -hmm. There are some perennial leeks around. A lot of leeks, if you uh, let them grow out and go to seed and then die off, and if you don't disturb that ground at the bottom of where the leek used to be, you'll get what are called little pearls, so small little pea-sized... Oh, yes. I've always wondered about those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're down here, if we wait till autumn, they'll often re-sprout as a baby leek, and you can just dig them up and replant them. So instead of having to nurture a tiny little thread-like leek seedling, which has only got the resources of a seed Mm -hmm. to turn into a leek, you're getting all the resources from a little pearl, a little bulb, the size of a pea. So they jump out of the ground. You've got a whole lot more resources. They get away really, really quickly. And so you don't have to nurture them with the same intensity. So because they're vegetatively reproduced, there's not much genetic diversity in perennial leeks. Right. So I thought, well, let's just plant every leek that I can find and we'll just let them all go to seed and then we'll wait till autumn and we'll see if any of them produce these little pearls and we'll dig those up and they'll become the parental group. Plant them all together the next year and let them all cross with each other and then replant that seed and see what happens. And... I'm in the middle of that at the moment. I had a couple of years where I just didn't do any selection on them. I just left them in a, in a corner just getting on with their lives. Right. So this year I've replanted them and they'll be doing some crossing over this summer. And then I'll be doing some selection to see if I can get out a little bit of genetic diversity into, that, into those perennial leaks. Nice. One of the issues there is supposedly, I haven't seen it here, but... The same with garlic, that those alliums that we reproduce from bulbs. Yep. And so they're, they're clones every year of the previous, of the parent, that they can build up viral load, apparently. And so you get a bit of decline of the vigor of the plant over the years. So if you can get some genetic diversity in there, you might have the ability to get some more robustness in, in the leeks. And the same with potato onions. Potato onions are onions where you plant one bulb a bit like a shallot and leave it over spring, summer, and when you harvest it in the middle of summer, you harvest a nest of seven or eight bulbs. 
again, you're not having to nurture tiny little thread-like seedling onions. You're planting a bulb and it, yeah, just jumps out of the soil and you don't have to worry about weeds very much because it's so robust. But the, um, but the genetic diversity in those, given that they're vegetatively propagated, isn't much. Yeah, there's a bit of a backstory there. A fellow called Kelly Winterton in Utah was growing potato onions and he'd never had them flower. They, and they flower rarely. And they flowered one year and he thought, oh, I wonder what will happen if I plant this seed. So he planted the seed Ooh. from those um, potato onions. And all of this diversity came out, multiple colors and sizes and wow. um, sh short storage ones and long storage ones. And uh, he blogged about it a fair bit. He was uh, kind enough to send me some seed about 12 years ago. And I've grown them out. And the same diversity has come out of mine. So I'm reselecting for yeah something that grows really well in my climate and stores really well. I, I'm pretty sure um, Green Mountain in Utah doesn't have the same climate as Bendigo in Australia. Oh, right, exactly. So, so I'm selecting for the stuff that'll work here. Yeah. I've also got hold of some Australian potato onions and hope, I'm hoping I've got a big crop of them in this year and I'm hoping that they will flower at the same time as the, the Green Mountain ones and mix the genes up and we'll get another whole lot of diversity out of them. Nice. Wow, you do have fun with this, don't you? Well, moving to a new property has been really, really good because yeah, in the past, my wife Andrea has said, yeah, you grow a really good vegetable garden, but we can't eat any of it because it's all breeding material. <laughs> so, so I just moved two acres of really nice uh, river flat soil just outside Bendigo. And now I've got room to do some decent grow outs and do some decent selections. So nice. yeah, my capacity is exceeded by my expectations, I think. <laughs> well, congratulations. You are the kind of peeps we need out there to keep this genetic diversity growing. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, well, it's something everyone can do, Greg. Like yeah. I started breeding peas in a patch of soil about the size of a kitchen table. You don't need a whole lot of room and you don't need a whole lot of expertise and it's not crazy scientists stuff it's you know it's easy my first patch of cross parsnips was you know three feet by three feet wow you know there's issues around inbreeding depression which we could get all nerdy and talk about but we won't but if you're crossing up really really diverse unrelated varieties of say parsnips then there's going to be enough genetic diversity in that bunch for you to not have to worry too much about you know, inbreeding and genetic issues. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I'm also working on some beetroot as well. Some what? Like beetroot. Oh, beets, yes. Beets, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know Kyosha? Kyosha is the yep. red and white striped beet. Yep. Yeah. And it's real fun. It looks really pretty on the plate. And then there's the beautiful golden beets. And I just thought to myself, why isn't there a yellow and red striped beet? Oh. Or why isn't there a yellow and white striped beet? Mm-hmm. So they're out there in the garden at the moment, about to flower and hopefully cross with each other. So again, you know, you don't need a whole lot of room. I've just tucked those away in a side bed. About, I had about a squ two square meters of beets growing. Wow. I selected out the ones that did the best and I've just tucked away half a dozen plants in a, in a corner to do their thing. Awesome, thanks. And I'm gonna shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might've learned from it. I'll stick with vegetable breeding. The most annoying failure I think was putting white carrots in amongst my short, fat, 
coloured carrot project <laughs> without figuring, without finding out that white is a dominant gene. Uh-oh. And, and it's been taking, taking me a long time to get all those white carrots out of my mix. And they're still there. The interesting thing is, is it's just throwing up all this diversity. Stuff that, like, I had this idea in my head that I was going to breed a short, fat, purple baby carrot. Mm -hmm. But I've got rainbow carrots. They're yellows and reds and purple on the outside and yellow on the inside. It's just unbelievable diversity. And along with that comes a whole lot of difference in flavor as well. Oh, I bet. And so what... I suppose in the first or second year, I just thought, oh, why did I put that in there? Is now just blossoming into this like adventure of color. Yeah. It's, it's really fantastic. And that's, <laughs> and that's one heck of a failure. How about your success? What do you consider your biggest success? Ah, uh, yeah, I'll shift away from vegetables. I think going back to teaching at university. Mm. I was a high school teacher and I gave that up for a while, went and became a park ranger and then got a chance to teach at university again and I realized how much I missed teaching. I thought I was probably never going to get that chance again, but it came up and yeah, I spent 19 years teaching at the university here in Bendigo and yeah, that's just been the most wonderful thing to do. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah, okay, it took took me till I was 45 to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up, but, but there it was. <laughs> yeah. I tell you, I absolutely loved teaching at university. I taught at Arizona State University for, I want to say, six years, and actually Janice, who you talked to, was one of my yeah. students there, and Taylor, who you didn't talk to, is a... Yeah. One of our other full-time people, she's she's on our team full-time. So I loved interacting with the students, and so I hear you. Oh, yeah, just hanging out with passionate young people is just fantastic. I love it. Yeah. And what drives you? What's your big why in the world? It's probably why. It's like curiosity. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I think I like to ask some tough questions, like why isn't there a yellow and purple striped beet. Yeah. Why isn't there a short, fat, purple carrot? And I think it's just, yeah, that curiosity about the world. Like, let's just try stuff. Yeah. Let's go out there and do it. I'm a what-if yeah. kind of guy, too. It's like, what if we did this? Or what if we did that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Might as well. So, yeah, I'm just continually trying you know, new things and coming up with crazy ideas and seeing if they'll work or not. Yeah. Excellent. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? It's got to be Carol Deppie's Breed Your Own Vegetable Varieties. That's the it. Gardeners and Farmers Guide to Plant Breeding and Seed Saving. It's yeah. on my desk right here next to me. Nice. And it's just a spectacularly well-written and beautiful book. And it's accessible. It doesn't leave much out, but anyone with a little bit of high school science, I reckon, could gain from that if they're interested in vegetable breeding. We had Carol on the podcast a while back, so check her out. She's one of my heroes. Yeah. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Start breeding vegetables. Just go out there and do it. There's a lot of myths and stuff, I think, around or misconceptions around heirloom vegetables and heritage vegetables and that you can't save seed from this and, you, you know, you can't grow that and you have to be really pure. I sort of take the approach that, you know, the genes are in there. Let's, let's just mix them up, I suppose. The, the, uh, the classic one is Brandywine Tomato, which comes from, I think, Pennsylvania in the U.S., and people even here in Australia will go, oh, you know, you've got to be really careful and 
not let them cross up and keep the genes pure. And I'm thinking, hang on, the adaptations of a tomato to Pennsylvania are not going to be the tomatoes I want to grow here. They're probably just not going to do well, and they don't. But if I can take lovely flavor genes from that tomato and get them crossed up with one of the Australian tomatoes that grows well, mm -hmm. maybe something interesting is going to come out. And people say, oh, they're not going to taste any good. You know, you're just going to end up with rubbish. Well, not in my experience. If you start with two really good parents, yeah, yeah, you might get one or two that don't do well. But on the whole, you're going to end up with good food, you know, like don't worry too much about keeping museum pieces of heirloom vegetables. Let's cross them up. Let's yeah. keep those genes swapping around and mixing up and turning into even better stuff. Because, you know, our growing conditions are going to be changing. We need to change Seems our varieties. Them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, keeping the varieties, keeping those heirloom varieties is critically important. Oh, we yeah. do need to hang on to all those genes. But let's not be too precious about it. Let's start playing with them a little bit and seeing if we can get something even better that's better adapted to, you know, our conditions today. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Greg. Thank you for having me, Greg. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I always love to talk about breeding seeds. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. How can our listeners get a hold of you? Where can they find you? I do sell some seeds occasionally through usefulseeds.com. I'm not I'm not trying to supply seeds to the universe. If people want some crazy mixed up varieties or some of my specialties, then they could see them there. But that's probably the easiest and you could leave a message there if you want to. Cool. We're also on Facebook and I think Instagram, though I don't do Instagram that well. Cool. Usefulseeds.com. Excellent. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash useful seeds. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.